Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, uh, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. So if you're here visiting, let me extend a warm welcome to you as well. We're glad that you're here. So thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, you find us in a few weeks into a series on the book of James, and that's where we're going to be this morning. We'll be in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. If you happen to be using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1011. If you'd like to be turning there. <clears throat> Let's pray together and then we'll read. Pray with me, please. Father, we come uh, to your word this morning, even as we looked last week, people in need of wisdom, people in need of you in the midst of our trials. And so as James continues on with that theme uh, this morning, would you open our eyes that we might see our need for you, that we might see the goodness and glory of the gospel, and that you might continue to, to draw us to you and that we would respond. And so we pray this expectantly in the name of Jesus. Amen. James 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. As we're reminded in Isaiah, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. There's an interesting passage for us to look at this morning, and here's one reason. Because virtually no one in this room thinks it has anything to do with them. So how about that? We're going to look at something that has to do with other people than people in this room. Uh, we'll see what it has to do with us by the end here. But let me start with telling you a story. Um, <clears throat> A couple weeks ago, my kids got home from the library and pulled out one of the children's books they found, which I've just found intriguing. And the name of the story is called Luba and the Wren. It's by Patricia Polacco. She's a children's writer. And it is a retelling of a Grimm's fairy tale. Uh, the Grimm's fairy tale it's based on is called The Fisherman's Wife. And, uh, but in this retelling, uh, it takes place not in Germany, but in, in the Ukraine. And... Uh, so the story opens up, and there's this girl, Luba, and she lives with her family in this little, uh, this little not hut, but you know, this kind of dilapidated old house on a farm that seems to be just barely making it, and everybody's poor. And she is a happy child, though. She goes off one afternoon to play in the woods, and while she's there in the woods, she sees uh, a, a wren that has been trapped in a fowler's snare. So she, she rescues it. She undoes the little snare and, and lets the bird go. And being a fairy tale, the, the, the bird turns around and speaks to her and says, thank you so much for setting me free. Uh, as you can tell, I'm an enchanted bird, and I can grant you. <laughs> that might be my gloss. I can't remember if she said that. <laughs> said, I can grant you whatever wish you would desire. And she thought for a minute. And she said, you know, there's, there's really nothing that I want, but I'm glad I could help. And she goes back home. She walks into her house, and she begins to tell her parents about what had happened. And they say, you foolish child, why didn't you ask her for a better house and for better fertile land instead of this little farm we've got? Go back and ask the bird. So she goes back to the forest and she says, little wren, little wren. And the, and the bird comes flying and says, what would you like? And she says, well, it's, it's not for me. It's, it's for my parents. They would like a better house and, and more fertile ground for our farm. And the wren says, gladly, go back home. It's already as you've asked. So she goes home. 
there her parents are living in this 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 better this nice cottage and they've got uh, a farm that's working and supporting and, and her parents are excited for a while but then one day they look at their daughter and they say why didn't you ask for more i want you to go back to the wren and ask her for a manor house and acres and acres of land and servants to help us run the farm the girl doesn't really want to, but her parents push her, and so she does. She goes back to the woods, and she calls to the little wren, and the wren comes and asks what she wants, and she tells, so you know, this is not for me. My, my parents have sent me to ask. She makes her request. The wren says, go home. It is as you have asked. And she goes home. There they are, a bigger, bigger house. They've got servants attending them, uh, and everything seems fine for a while. And then the parents say, this is not enough. We want to be... Uh, the king and queen of all Ukraine. And so go back and ask the wren. She does. Same thing. Wren says, go back. It is as, is, it is as you've asked. She comes back and there are, uh, you know, there are people from all over the region that are coming. They're serving their new king and queen and everything's fine for a while. The next time it is, we want to be the czar and czarina of all of Russia. Go back and ask the wren. She reluctantly goes back with her head held low. The wren says, what is it this time? What do your parents want? They want to be czar and czarina. Go home. It is as you've asked. She comes back, and the palace is more magnificent than when she left, and servants everywhere, and her parents in pomp and circumstance, and until one day they say, it is not enough. We want to be the emperor and empress of all the world. And the girl doesn't want to go. And they say, we are your king and queen. Go. So she goes and asks. Same thing. Go home. It is as you have asked. And come home. And here they are with the flags of all the nations. And everybody bowing in obedience to her parents. And it lasts for a while. Then one day her parents say, we want to be like gods. And the daughter said, you don't know what you're asking. You can't ask this. Go. And so she does. This is an interesting story for a lot of reasons, but I think it actually brings out some of what we see in the passage in James today. Because you have, on the one hand, this family starts out in this poverty. There are people in need. They are undergoing a trial. But then somewhere along the way, that, that poverty is relieved. And we find that they are still in the midst of a trial. Still in the midst of a test. Still in the midst of the difficulties of life when none of this is enough for them. So these couple verses, a few verses here, uh, a commentator, Douglas Moo, wrote a very helpful James commentary that I've used. And he says this, James may intend us to see poverty and wealth as the greatest test for Christians. He says poverty and wealth, the greatest test for Christians. So we look at these and we kind of think, how can that be? I mean, we can maybe get part of that, but not the other But James says both. So this morning as we look at this, we're going to see uh, two things. We're going to see how this poverty and wealth, how these are trials, maybe even the greatest trials. And we're going to see how we can navigate those trials. So first, how these are trials. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know these, this first section of James, it's all about trials. It opens up with James exhorting uh, these followers of Jesus under very hard circumstances to, to rejoice. He, he tells them there is joy to be found in the midst of the hardness and trials of life. And he says, God's working perseverance in you and let it have its full effect. God is at work. And then as we looked last week, the next couple of verses, he talks about what is the thing that we need most in the midst of our difficult trials of life. And James says we need wisdom. 
That's what we need. We need wisdom. And then he comes this week to a specific trial. These two specific trials of poverty and wealth. The trial of poverty. Look with me in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. If you're using the ESV as I'm reading here, it says lowly brother. Some translations uh, translate this as the poor brother. And that's a good translation as well. It's often used to those who are literally sunk in the midst of economic poverty. But, uh, but you know, the, there's, a, there's a broader sense to it as well. This is someone who has been brought low by the trials and difficulties of life. Somebody who's been brought low. Outward, and, the, and there's an, both an outward and an inward struggle here for this kind of trial. Okay, poverty. Being brought low, there's an outward trial and an inward trial. First, the outward trial. You can imagine this. Somebody who's in the middle of a situation like this, severe economic strain, maybe the crushing loss of investments, um, literal poverty of some kind, or, or many of the other things that life sends at us are trials in and of themselves, aren't they? I mean, those are difficult times that we find ourselves in from time to time. And so they are a trial in and of themselves. But here's the thing. In hard times like that, have you not tasted that those outward trials don't just stay on the outside, but they tend to creep in? I mean, they, they tend to infect us in some way. They tend to come in and begin to rot things away on the inside. It causes an inward struggle often. Uh, and quickly, these often become a theological struggle, right? So whatever that hard trial, whatever that type of poverty that comes our way, quickly our questions become... Where is God in all this? You know, why has he let this happen to me? Maybe it starts bringing up deeper questions like, what is it that God is really trying to do in my life to begin with? Because clearly I didn't understand that before now. Does he really care about me? Does he have the power to rescue me out of my trials? Is there anything he can do with this? And that comes at us from all angles. Again, could be physical poverty. could be all kinds of frustrations and setbacks that you find in your business life or your work life. Or maybe it's struggles that happen to you at school. Or maybe it's dating failure or marriage failure. All these outward struggles that can lead to these inward debilitating struggles of what is going on. You know, thinking about... The struggles of life. Think about that for our students here starting a new semester. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're set up for that, right? Everything about life says you must make the grade. In those days when you, when you don't live up to the bar, what happens? And it begins to sink in. It causes an inward struggle. Some of you may be familiar with the movie Gaslight, 1944, Ingrid Bergman. I'm speaking about it as if I've seen it, which I haven't, but let me tell you about it. <laughs> Though I have not seen it, and I can let you know the blockbuster in town doesn't carry it, there is uh, <clears throat> this just intriguing thing about the storyline as I've, as I've come to see it. There, uh, in this movie, it's a mystery, but, but among many things going on in this, in this movie, there's a, a woman who, who marries this you know, slightly older guy who's just swept her off her feet and uh, seems to care for her so well. But as their marriage progresses, we see that he is up to this uh, un- unbelievable plot that lies behind this, and she, he's using her. And, and one of the things he does in the course of the movie is he subtly tries to convince her that she is losing her mind. And so she'll, uh, she'll go around looking for something she's been you know, searching all over the house for. She knows where she put it, and he's taken it and moved it somewhere else and then just puts it back. And she, well, how did that happen? 
And they're having conversations with friends, and he subtly corrects her about the details. She thinks she's remembered of stories, and she finds things in her purse that she'd been missing. She doesn't know what's happening. She begins to think that she is going crazy. And that's part of his deep design for her. And that's what happens to us sometimes when we are fed dangerous and misrepresenting information, doesn't it? We can begin to think we're a little crazy. We begin to think maybe we don't have such a good grip on this world after all. And James is telling us that when you're in the middle of trials like this, they begin to speak things to you that are dangerous to listen to. Your life is a failure. God has abandoned you. There is nowhere to go. These subtle things, the subtle inward struggle that our trials bring our way. Now, James uh, says that happens to us in our experiences of poverty. But notice he spends uh, a, few, a few words on this in verse 9 and then 10 and 11. He spends the rest of the time talking about this other trial, this trial of wealth. Listen again to what he says. Lowly brother, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, if, if you've read through James, and as we will be over the next number of weeks, you'll see the rich are mentioned several times in the book of James. And once you get to chapter 5, it, is, it becomes scathing about the role of the rich and the ways they oppress the poor. And uh, I think that when James speaks of the rich, he's, he's speaking about more than one group. He's speaking about one group in chapter 5 when he, he really brings the heat for them. But here in, in chapter 1, uh, commentators are, are divided about this question. Is James speaking of rich people who are Christians? Or is he speaking about rich people who are not Christians, who are not a part of this church he's addressing, who are on the outside? And again, commentators are split. I think the evidence really leans more towards this, that the people that he's speaking to are believers. They're wealthy, well-to-do Christians. So on the one hand, he's addressing people in the trial of poverty. And on the other hand, in the same congregation... He's addressing these people in the midst of the trial, the trial that comes to them through wealth. Uh, and here's where I think this, these verses really start to get us, because <clears throat> who thinks wealth is a trial, right? I mean, on the one hand, or success or flourishing of many kinds. There are a couple things that happen to us in the midst of wealth, at least. And here's one of them. Wealth tends to blind us. Wealth tends to blind us. I mean, think about wealth or success and the metaphors we tend to use for that. We, this person is climbing the ladder in their company, right? I mean, there is a low place and there is a high place that you want to get to. It involves climbing the ladder to get there. Okay? And so when we say, James issues this warning to the wealthy, well, here's the way wealth tends to blind us. Because let's say we're all on that ladder somewhere. And which direction do we tend to look in when this issue of wealth comes up? Well, most of us tend to look up. Wealthy? Have you seen those guys up there? Like, okay, I've got a nice house, but have you seen the house at the corner, the one right on the river? Or, okay, so I'm moderately well-dressed, but have you seen that guy in my class? And have you seen what he's driving and is in the parking lot? You know, we always tend to look up when we think about our wealth because we all know someone who is wealthier than we are. And maybe many people. Off the hook, right? We don't tend to look around in the other direction. You know, where, 
uh, a direction that, w- that would give us perspective on, on how much has really been given to us by the hand of our Lord. Now, you flip it around, though, and as soon as somebody starts talking to you about maybe things that lead your wealth, your success, your intelligence, your, what an outstanding ser- uh, student you are at William & Mary, okay, you're still on that ladder. But at that point, you don't look up. You look down, right? I am a good student, right? I am pretty smart. I am doing well. I do have my stuff together. Not like those poor guys. Not like those people down there that um, just don't study like they should. I mean, after all, this is William and Mary. Or those people down there that, you know, they just have not applied themselves to their work. They don't have a good work ethic. I mean, have you seen how they spend their money? Have you seen the things they waste it on? Have you seen what they do? Have you seen how disorganized and undisciplined they are? Unlike me, right? Because wealth, success tend to blind us. But wealth does something else. It tends to numb us. Some of you will know this name. Uh, Dr. Paul Brand, he passed away a few years ago. Uh, He was a surgeon, originally a hand surgeon, and he went to do work uh, with lepers, I believe it was in India, a number of years ago. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Brand is the one who first sort of made the, the medical discovery of what is actually happening in leprosy. Because you've, you, you know, you've, you've either seen pictures or you've heard stories about lepers, and we've got this sort of cultural picture of people with, like, fingers falling off and, you know, just literally falling apart. And uh, what he, he was the first one to realize, though, what was really going on is not simply that skin starts flaking off, but that for leper victims, their nerves begin to die. And so gradually what happens is they can no longer feel pain. In fact, the name of his book that he wrote about this was called Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. The Gift Nobody Wants. Because what happens if you have leprosy is, and you feel no pain, well, when you reach over and you're cooking dinner and you pick up that hot skillet off the stove, you never feel it. And so it just burns and burns. Or when you get that rock in your shoe that usually you just take right out, you never feel it. And it just burrows itself into your foot and gets infected. And this is how they get so sick, because they don't feel pain. And I think one of the things going on in this passage is that's what wealth does to us, that we begin to lose our nerve endings. And we begin to become numb Numb to our real need, right? Because when things are going right, it is so easy to say, I have gotten myself here. I can manage my life. We are doing just fine. Okay, you remember with the trial for those in poverty and gaslight and hearing the lies that are spoken to them and how damaging that can be. In our wealth, we get a whole other set of lies. You are competent for your life. You know, you're not such a bad guy after all. You know, God, in fact, really owes you one. Look at what an exemplary life you've led. Wealth blinds us and it numbs us. Jesus had much to say about wealth. Here's what he says in Mark 4. He refers to the deceitfulness of wealth as lying to us. And in Mark 19, or Matthew 19, he makes this comment. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says, and James tells us, both of these are incredible trials. Both of these have the power to drive us from Jesus or draw us closer to him. So that's what they are. How are we going to navigate them? How are we going to walk through these? Well, 
Here's what James holds up for us. That both rich and poor must look to the gospel. To the good news of Jesus, His death, His resurrection for us. His life for us. Jesus, the foundation of our standing with God. He points us to that. Because he says the gospel is a solution for both types of struggle, for the rich and the, and the poor, because it re-centers us. And, and look at the way he phrases that, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Okay, first, the lowly brother must be lifted up by the gospel, must be raised up. For us, when we are in those times when we are that person, James tells us, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Listen to what Jesus read for his very first sermon. Okay, this happens in Luke chapter 4. Goes in the synagogue, his first public teaching. What's he going to say? Opens up the scroll and he reads from Psalm, or excuse me, from Isaiah 61. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because when Jesus began to come and preach and to teach and to heal, the poor knew that their day had come. As Jesus invited them in to be healed. As he invited them in to be fed, as he invited them in to be forgiven and made right with their God, the poor knew that good news had come. They knew they needed God's intervention in their lives. And James reminded us, reminds us of this, that in our poverty, that we would exult, that we would boast in our exaltation, that in Christ we are lifted up. That our struggle and our poverty does not define us and it does not have the last word. It points us to Jesus right now, seated, our reigning king at the right hand of the Father. He says, that is your king. And Jesus in glory, he says, that is where we are going. You don't see it all now. You don't feel it all now. But one day, our king is coming back. Just as Jesus was raised from humiliation to exaltation, He will raise us, His people, with Him. He said, you look around right now, you are in the middle of the story. And you have to keep your eyes on how this story ends. The poor are raised up. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The lowly brother is exalted. But then he says exactly the same, or he, he talks about boasting again to, to the rich brother. And what does he say? Verse 10, the rich, may he boast in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But here's the thing. James says this expecting the rich brother to hear this and say, yes. And that is good news for me too. Sounds like good news, right? You're perishing. You are fading away. 
He gives this very sober warning to the rich because he says, it is so easy for you to be blind and it's so easy for you to become numb and it's so easy for you to forget what everyone else knows in the midst of their struggle with poverty, that this life is passing away. It's true for you too. Camper was telling me this morning about watching uh, the uh, NCAA football national championship game, and it, as the game ends and the commentators are talking, you know everybody's excited running the field, and the commentators then say they begin to speculate on who might win next year. Like it's barely happened, and the glory is already fading away. What will happen? What will happen next year? Oh yeah, those two teams out on the field right now, fading away. James says, our lives are fading away. And he looks at the rich person and he says, brother, for you, this is good news. Why? Because all those things you were holding in your hand, all those things that you were looking to, to give you status and security and health, reputation, he says, those are like dust. But that is good news because you have something more sure more eternal, more lasting, more saving than that. Just as he, he speaks to the lowly brother and says, Rejoice in your exaltation. Look to Jesus. He looks at these brothers and says, Rejoice in your humiliation because all of this is fading away. Look to Jesus. The gospel is good news for you as well. And begin to live in that now. Put it down. All that stuff you're carrying... All that stuff you are laboring for to validate yourself and to insulate yourself. He says it's, it's fading away. There's a firmer rock for you than that. One that you can set your feet on now. He tells both the rich and the poor to boast. Jeremiah 9 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Boast in that. Okay, let me wrap up. Back to Luba and the wren. Remember her. She, again and again, back to the forest and bigger house and more lands and czar and czarina. And finally, she hears those dreaded words from her parents. They say, we want to be like God. Go back to the wren. She goes back to the wren. It's an incredibly stormy night. She calls out to the wren. He, he, he hears her and he comes and says, What is it that they want now? She stammers out the words. They want to be like gods. The wren says, Go. It is done. So she makes her way back through the forest. <clears throat> she comes through the clearing where the palace is. And she finds the little shack where they started. She goes and she walks in, and there her parents are, back in their old raggedy clothes, and they embrace her. And they say, we are so glad that you're at home. We love you, and we are glad for you. And the story ends there. Much head-scratching ensued in my family. For a couple days. Here's what I think is going on in the story, and here's what I think we've got for us. I I mean, I think in the story what what it's pointing to is that we want to be like gods, and they come back, and and, and her family is content. This greatest of gifts, they are content. 
right where they were. Because nothing they were given along the way could make them content. Now, James is not simply saying to us, go and be content with what you've got. What he is saying to us, though, is this. Go and be content in Jesus. Go and know that your God loves you. And go right back in the middle of the situation and the trial he has you in now, the one that has brought you low or the one that has raised you up. And know that he is present and there. If you're low, may the gospel lift you up, even this week. For those of us who are high, may we rejoice as it brings us back down, lets out our hot air, and rests us firmly again on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do pray, those who are struggling and low, would you, would you lift up our brothers and sisters? Would you bring encouragement? Would you bring real, tangible, physical help that is needed? Would you bring healing where needed? Would you bring comfort? Would you lift us up? Would you remind of your goodness and that you have not abandoned? And Lord, for those who are lifted up, would you mercifully bring us down? That we might see the lie of our success for what it is. That it is not something by which we can navigate our lives. It does not have the true say in our lives. And it is fleeting even as we hold it. But you, O oh God, are unchanging. May we rest in you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.